we've gone through some of the very foundational truths about who God is, that God is real, that God is absolute. We looked at that name, I am, right? We looked at God as triune. We talked last week, we got into what we call the necessary attributes of God. And these are the omnis, right? He's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he's omnibenevolent. We're going to break that one down a little farther. But we call them necessary attributes of God because they are part of the definition of what it means to be God. Right? If you conceive of who God is, there's certain things that have to be true about him. Because if they were not true, he wouldn't be God. And it's not as if we're somehow pinning God down and saying, you better be like this. It's, if, if somebody did not have all power, you couldn't call that person God, could you? Because there's something greater than them. And this is how, oddly enough, a lot of the world's religions conceive of their gods as limited. That they have to work within the same rules as everybody else. And they often have legends dating back to the very beginning when there actually were they, some of the Greeks called them titans or whatever they were called. That th Those were the big gods. Or maybe there was just one big god and he could do everything. But now we serve these. And it's a, it's a really twisted version of what the word tells us. That everybody knew God in the beginning. And then there were usurping angels that twisted what we understood to be God as basically some magic person in the sky that could change some things but not everything. But... We're going to understand who God really is, and the Lord maintained this truth through the Israelites and through the Hebrews. We know that God is absolute, that he is all-powerful, and tonight we're looking at his omnipresence, that God is near, really, God is everywhere. And this is something that most of us learned in Sunday school. God is everywhere, but it's important for us to know that. It is a reasonable, as I said, extrapolation from the definition of God. If God is, if his name is I am, he's the foundation of reality. If everything that exists has come from him, we know that to be, right? That God created all things. So the idea of God being limited by space is kind of ridiculous because God invented space. It's like saying an author is limited by the pages, it's kind of hard to even conceive of that because it's ridiculous because he's the one that created the pages and put the words down on the page. In the Old Testament, God asks Jeremiah a few rhetorical questions. Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24. God says, Am I not a God near at hand and not a God afar off? Can anyone hide himself in secret places so I shall not see him? Do I not fill heaven and earth, says the Lord? He says, I'm right here. And what was going on is the children of Israel were in rebellion against the Lord and they were committing their sins in secret. <laughs> the Lord's like, I can see you. It's not like you can go hide like Adam and Eve tried to do in the very beginning. The Lord is everywhere. He says in Jeremiah 23, 24, do I not fill heaven and earth? It's like, did you miss this part that I'm everywhere? And I should clarify, this point does not mean that God is everything. This is where... Certain pantheist religions, Hinduism, Buddhism, and the like, they, they think that they can make common cause with Christians. Yeah, we believe that God's everywhere too. He's in that rock and he's in that tree and really we're all God. We're all sons of God, right? You've got to find the God within. That is not what the omnipresence of God means. If you believe that everything from rocks to people are truly God, you're not in line with what the Bible teaches anyway. When you say enlightenment is realizing that you are God, that God is within you. 
And that's where salvation comes from. They're skipping a step, aren't they? They're skipping the fact that God is not in you, and that's the problem. And the Lord wants to give you his Holy Spirit. But that is not what, what this means. And some people think that this is some brilliant philosophy. But I don't see how it is a good thing and why people are encouraged by the fact that I'm really no different from a rock or a donkey or a dog because we're all part of, of God, right? We're all going to one day just be part of that one big God nirvana, man. It's going to be great. Scientists come at this from a different angle, which is why, you ever wonder why it seems like atheists have this weird respect for Hinduism, even though it seems like it should be the exact opposite? Because they kind of wind up at the same place. You've heard, uh, I forget the scientist's name, but his famous speech where he said, Everything in the world exists from stars that have exploded. So in the beginning, there was stardust. Isn't that beautiful that we're all made of the same thing that makes up the stars? And, you know, hippies go, yeah, man, it's so cool. Why is that cool? That means that I'm no different than anything else in the whole world. There's nothing special about me. You can also see why both of those philosophies together tend to drift towards totalitarianism. Because if you believe that there really is no individual, there really is no specialness, then we can make it whatever we want because I'm God anyway, or it might as well be. That's pantheism. Nor do we go for the spiritual but not religious thing. It sounds really great, but it's really kind of insipid when you say God is in everything. No, I don't believe I'm God, but God's in me. People love to use that phrase, the divine spark, which is a Gnostic phrase. It's not a Christian phrase. The divine spark is within you. No, the image of God, that's something different. But I say, God is, he's in that tree, and he's in that cloud, and he's in that floor, and he's in you. That's called panentheism, meaning God is in everything. That is not the same thing. That's what the Gnostic Christians believed early on. They believed, oh, God is in everything, but he was mostly in Jesus. So Jesus can help us escape from God being in us, and we can break out and just be God. That's not what we want. We are made in God's image, but we do not possess him as part of our being. We are separate from him. We said a few weeks ago, God is the original reality. He's absolute. He is all that existed prior to creation. Remember that? God was not floating in space when he created the world. There was no space for him to float in. He was all that there was. That's why his name is I Am. And then everything that we experience was created. Before he created the world, God was all that there was. But God is not all that exists anymore. This is an important distinction. God created a world that came from him, but is not him. We do not believe, as some Hindus do, that we are just the dream that Vishnu is dreaming, and one day he'll wake up and the world will end. That sounds really poetic, but it's kind of horrifying in a lot of ways, right? Everything that exists is either God or dependent upon God. There is separation between God and his creation. So those are some bad ideas that we've got out of the way. And now we can focus on what is true for most of our time here. God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. His presence fills the world. And of course, God is spirit. He is invisible. He's not physical. Everything that is physical was created by God, so he is not bound by physical restraints. Because you and I are bound by physical restraints, like time and space, then we have a hard time conceiving of things that are not bound by those same things. But that's who God is. And that's actually what the name of God means. If there is somewhere that God could not go, then he would be less than that space, which is not possible by definition, or he would not be God. We need to look for somebody else. And this is, of course, what the Bible says. And usually in the Bible, when God is reminding people of his omnipresence, 
He's reminding us that you cannot hide from him, like we just read in Jeremiah, and that there's nothing that's beyond his control and his jurisdiction. All the cartoons with Satan and the demons plotting in some little chamber down in hell, and he'll never see this coming. No, he sees everything coming because he's everywhere. However, knowing that God is everywhere, there are and there have been places where God allows his presence to manifest itself more than in other places. This is important to know. So we know that God is everywhere. Here's the next step. That God is everywhere, but there are certain places where he will reveal himself more. This is what we mean when we pray for the Spirit to come. We'll sing songs that say, come Holy Spirit. And there are some people that want to jump all over us. Don't you know that God's already there? He doesn't need to come anywhere. Yeah, we get that. What we're asking for is, Lord, show yourself. Manifest yourself. Let us recognize that you're here. And from our perspective, it's almost as if God wasn't here and then he came and he was there. It's a perfectly reasonable biblical metaphor as long as you understand the theology behind it. We want to see the special manifestation of God's presence. Think of the Garden of Eden, how the Lord would walk in the garden in the cool of the day. Does that mean that back in heaven, the angels could slack off because God wasn't there anymore? No. Think of the burning bush. Did that mean that God wasn't in Egypt? He was just in the burning bush? No. Think of the Shekinah glory in the wilderness, the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire, the presence of God. It was there in a special way, but that does not mean that God was not somewhere else. Remember the Lord appeared to Balaam in a dream and told him, when you go to the children of Israel, do not curse them, but bless them. Well, did he have to like, make a quick sprint from the tabernacle to Balaam and then come back? No, God is everywhere. The most obvious example of this is the temple, the Holy of Holies. It was the place where God's glory dwelt. The Lord said, this is the place where my presence will be. This is my sanctuary. Yet even when they built the temple, as wonderful as it was, even though the glory of God manifested itself and it said there was a thick fog that was shining bright like the sun, that the priests couldn't even do all the sacrifices they had prepared which means there was an administrative pastor somewhere pulling his hair out because the schedule was going crazy. But that's what happens sometimes when the Lord shows up. But even Solomon understood that God was bigger than a little golden house on earth. In 1 Kings 8, 27, he prays, and, and the whole long prayer goes on for the whole chapter, asking God to show himself in this temple and to make this his special home. But then at the end of it, he says, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple which I have built. They understood. If you read a lot of Greek history or Roman mythology, for example, if you burned the God's temple down, the God can't do anything anymore because we burned his temple down. Isn't that a bummer? When, when your God can be stopped by that, that silly little thing. And I remember watching one of those uh, movies where they have a dramatization of the Bible and it was the story where Rachel stole her father's household gods and he opens up the cabinet to look for them and pray and he freaks out and gets all angry and my uncle who's a pastor too we're watching he goes isn't it a bummer when your god can be stolen <laughs> we understand this Stephen drove this point home do you remember in the book of Acts there's you blasphemed the temple he goes look guys the temple is special but God has been manifesting himself all over the world. He talked to Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Jonah thought he could run from the Lord, and God had to remind him, hey, I'm not stuck in the temple, Jonah. I can find you even at the bottom of the ocean. And, and Stephen said in Acts chapter 7, the Most High does not dwell in temples made with hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What house will you build for me? 
says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Has not my hand made all these things? This is what Stephen was preaching. This is what Jesus was saying. He was trying to draw the people's eyes away from the temple itself to the person of God. Temple was fine. There's nothing wrong with the temple. But if you were worshiping the temple instead of the God of the temple, you were missing it, which is why Jesus knew he needed to get in there and clean house a little bit. If even heaven, the place where God's presence is the most visibly manifested and the most overwhelmingly manifested, if even that cannot contain the Lord, why would we think that our temples or our churches are the only ones that can hold him in? In fact, the cool thing is, the Spirit of God, who fills the whole earth, remember, has now filled up each and every one of us as Christians. In the past, God concentrated his presence, and again, that's a metaphor, he revealed his presence more in the temple. But now the New Testament has a wonderful thing to say. 1 Corinthians 6.19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? God himself dwells within you. All throughout history, in the Bible, we see God manifesting himself in the wilderness, manifesting himself at the tabernacle, in the Shekinah glory of the Lord, finding Jonah on the sea. And then we come to the New Testament, and the Lord says, I will make my presence to be with you. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. The special revelation of the presence of God is happening in your heart right now. Isn't that something? That is so cool to me. You are a mobile holy place. You walk around and your heart is the holy of holies. Now you think if you could, if the priests wouldn't even go into the holy of holies without bells on their robes, to make sure that they were still moving and a rope tied around their leg in case God struck them dead. That's a pretty special place. But the Lord said, I'm going to make you that. Your heart is now that holy place. You are taking the presence of God with you everywhere you go. That changes things, doesn't it? And this is a reminder for us that God is always watching. Adam and Eve were foolish to hide from God in the garden. You ever have your kid do something wrong and they try to hide from you, but their leg is like sticking out from the bed or something like that? And you, you go, where are you? Are you in here? No. And it's a point of correction sometimes, but it's also a point of reassurance, isn't it? That God is with you all the time. The psalmist wrote, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Psalm 139, verses 7 through 10. So where can I go? I can go down into the grave. I can die. I can dig all the way down to the core of the earth and God's still going to be right there with you. I can fly up to heaven. I can go to the farthest star that we could possibly chart. Maybe I have some special technology that lets me fly faster than the speed of light. I'm going to get there and God's still going to be right there with you. Isn't that great? Oh, Lord, please be with me. The Lord's like, I am. Don't worry. I'm with you. When we discuss some of the attributes of God, like his power, like his holiness, we can feel far from him. And part of that is because he is far from us in a lot of ways. God is separate from us. That's what the word holy means. It means to be separated. You had the holy place. It was a place that was separated for holy religious, you could say, purposes. There was the showbread in the temple, in the tabernacle. It was holy, meaning it had been set aside from the other bread. 
And part of the thing Jesus had to come in and correct was, it's still bread, guys. It's not like it's magic bread. <laughs> but the Lord is holy. And so when we talk about that, we can start to feel distant from him. And even when you talk about one side of the omnipresence coin, you think God is everywhere. Oh, and you kind of feel like you're hiding from him in a lot of ways. But you can flip it around and recognize the good part of that, which is that God is right here with you. And this is the theological term, the immanence of God. This is I-M-M-A-N-E-N-T. Immanent instead of imminent. Imminent with an I means like it's going to happen right now. Immanent means close or near or at hand or accessible would be a good word for that. We know who God is. Ezekiel saw the glory of the Lord and it was this big crystal sheet and there was these angels that were shaped like wheels and things with four heads and that was the glory of God. But he's also approachable. He's imminent. He's right here with us. He's close. He's interested in the world. God is not barricaded up in heaven, aloof and maybe kind of bored. What's happening down on the earth? I don't care. And a lot of snarky people, or maybe they're snarky because they've been hurt somewhere along the line. They want to say, oh, doesn't God see any of this stuff? Yeah, he does. He does care. He is active and he is gauged in the world. Maybe this is something that your wife has said to you, gentlemen, at one point. Say, I'm here. Yeah, you're here, but you're not here. <laughs> you ever heard? Yeah, you all heard that before. You're here, but you're not here. You're in the room, but you're not with us. You know, it's like, come on, put it away so we can be together. Like, I'm right here. What's the problem? Well, the Lord is here and he's here. He's with us. Because God is an artist. The world is his masterpiece. And every artist is interested in his creation, aren't they? Every songwriter has a hard time viewing their own work objectively. There's two sides to that. First of all, it's never done. And you're always working on it. And you're always tinkering with it. And you're always trying to make it better. And also, you think it's better than anything you've certainly heard on the radio this week. You're proud of it. It's your own work. Every painter, they paint a little bit of themselves into the canvas. You can give 10 painters the same subject and tell them to paint it in the same style, in the same way, but it's going to be a little different because there's a little bit of themselves in every work. Storytellers will write their books or they'll, they'll write their poems or their songs or whatever it is. And a lot of times you find out you've been working out something deep within yourself and you look at it and you're like, that's my life. It's so obvious. I didn't notice this until later. This is why scholars can come back and say, yeah, Hemingway didn't know why he wrote this, but we look at what was going on in his life, and it's pretty obvious why he wrote that, because he poured himself right into it. Creators, artists, who are disinterested, or uninterested, I should say, in their work, and they just cobble something together that will sell. You write the song to the perfect algorithm that will shoot right to the top of the charts, or you're just throwing it out there because you need to... You need to make ends meet for that week. That, that's called a hack. We've heard of that, right? They're just a hack. Movie looks good, but there's nothing to it. There's no substance. There's nothing real. That's called a hack. God is not a hack. He did not make a world and say, and boom, 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 there we go, done. And then just kind of let it spin for a while. The Lord is interested and engaged in his world. He's intimately aware of everything that goes on in the world. Remember in Job 39, the Lord shows up in a tornado, <laughs> the Lord allows his presence to manifest there as a whirlwind. And he says, you got something to say to me, Job? 
Job 39, 1 and 2, he said, Do you know the time when the wild mountain goats bear young? Can you mark when the deer give birth? Can you remember the months that they fulfill? Like not only have you seen the deer give birth, do you remember every day when the child was growing in the mother's womb and it was getting heavier and they were hiding in the woods more often because they didn't want to get caught? I remember that, he says. Do you know the time when they bear young? Whenever you see one of those nature documentaries and they show you something that has never been possible to be seen before. I remember when the Planet Earth documentary came out a few years ago. They were like, we captured the mating ritual of this, uh, this beautiful bird down in this tropical region. And you watch it and it's like the most bizarre thing you've ever seen. And it's like they had to sit in that spot for 14 days and they only ate rice and water. And they were able to get this shot. And it's, it's really cool to see this stuff because you're like, oh, look, a bird, but you don't realize everything that goes on in the life of that little bird. And the Lord's like, I see all of that day by day. God spends that whole chapter in Job laying out his intimate awareness and involvement in creation. And not only is he aware, God acts in the world. Repeatedly in the Bible, God mocks the idols of people who cannot hear or act or speak. Psalm 135, verse 15 and 17. The idols of the nation are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear, nor is there any breath in their mouths. We do not serve a dumb idol that cannot help, nor do we serve the God of the deist. You know, deism, that God created the world, he spun the top, and he just lets it spin. That's not who we serve. He doesn't allow everything to proceed according to natural processes. He intervenes. He is our ever-present help in time of need. He cares for his creation. And ever since the Garden of Eden, when he walked with Adam, he has been close. He has been imminent right there with us. A couple different ways that God intervenes in the Bible. First, we see he intervenes in nature. Psalm 104, 14, he causes the grass to grow for the cattle and vegetation for the service of man that he may bring forth food from the earth. We look at that and go, this is a natural process and it's very easy to map it out and we don't need God for that. But that's actually the divine intervention of an imminent God. You say, well, why do seeds die and then bear fruit? Well, because they do. Yeah, but why though? Science is really good at telling us how things work, not very good at telling us why. The Lord is at work making that happen. And when the Lord withdraws his hand, all of a sudden the seeds aren't growing anymore, are they? He intervenes in history. We talked about this last time. God is the kingmaker. He raises up and he casts down nations and rulers. Romans 13.1, there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. He's the mover and shaker of nations. And third, God intervenes in our lives. Isaiah 64 Verses 4 and 5. From the beginning of the world, men have not heard nor perceived by the ear, nor has the eye seen any God besides you who acts for the one who waits for him. You meet him who rejoices and does righteousness, who remembers you in your ways. What other God, he says, actually works on behalf of his people? What other God hears their prayers and does something about it? The Bible is a long string of stories where God intervened in the affairs of individuals. He opens up the womb. He heals our sicknesses. He chastises us when we sin and he showers us with blessing. And we know that the greatest way that God has intervened in the world is through Jesus Christ. He became a man and entered history, time and space in order to secure our salvation. All the things that we talked about at the beginning that God is not limited by, 
the Son of God limited himself to those things so that he could be with us. And they shall call his name, what did they say? Emmanuel, which means God is with us. God is imminent. He is omnipresent. He's not just everywhere. He's here, you understand. Galatians 4 says, Even we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. You talk about all the miracles, all the cycles of life that God has interrupted He broke the cycle of sin and death with his own hand. He's always been omnipresent by the Spirit, but he stepped into the dust with us to change history. And it's because of that imminence that God is available for prayer. Because he's right there. We can speak to God and ask him for our needs, and he hears us. He answers us. Jesus said, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Prayer is not just speaking to the ceiling. It is acting upon a theological belief in the imminence of God. God is everywhere and he's here. The pagans pray and do all kinds of horrific things hoping that they might get God's attention. I remember in Nepal there was a procession going through one of the cities and it was the Hare Krishnas with the long hair and they were flipping in the air and leaping and banging these drums and yelping and howling and they're working themselves up into a frenzy because they think that if we can get loud enough and we can move fast enough, then Krishna will hear us and he'll listen. You read about in the book of Kings when Elijah was there with the prophets of Baal and they're cutting themselves and stabbing themselves and pouring out their own blood in order to get God's attention. That's when Elijah starts to taunt them. Is your God on vacation? Because my God is everywhere. He doesn't go on vacation. God is always listening. He's there and he's able to act. All of this goes back to God's love. We know for a fact that God has to be everywhere or he wouldn't be capital G God, but he's loving. He's imminent in the world. He is near and he is interested, not just in the affairs of kings, not just in the Oval Office, not just in the UN or wherever. He's interested in your life, in the affairs of your life. He watches the deer as the deer conceive and get ready to bear their fawns and walk through the woods day by day. He sees you too. You can trust him for that reason. We used to sing as kids, he's got the whole world in his hands. He does have the whole world in his hands, but he takes special time for you. Matthew 10, 29 through 31, Jesus said, Are not two sparrows sold for a copper coin? What's that mean? They're cheap. Two for a penny. (laughs) And not one of them falls to the ground apart from your father's will. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Do not fear, therefore. You are of more value than many sparrows. The Lord thought you were worth the blood of his only son. So God is everywhere in that metaphysical sense. But he's also uniquely present within every Christian by his Holy Spirit. He's involved and interested in the world around us. He's here and he's here. He's made himself known to us. He desires us to know him. God doesn't distance himself from us. If you feel like God is far from you, it's not true. It's a lie because God is never far from you. He's always right there with you. He sent his son to die on a cross so that you would never be separated again. He sent you his Holy Spirit so that you would always be together because he loves us. He speaks to us. He listens to us. He sees your life. He sees your heart and he still loves you. You look at your own life. You've got things that you're glad 
that nobody knows about. And you think you're safe because it's been about 15 years and nobody's found out yet. But we got to stay vigilant because you never know. Somebody might find out. The Lord knows all that stuff and he still loves you. You don't get one over on God. It's sort of funny because sometimes you'll catch yourself praying alone and you're afraid to say certain things out loud. That just would not be proper. The Lord's like, yeah, I've seen all that. I was there. Oh, you were there for that? Yeah, I was. How did you not just strike me down? Because I love you that much. When you grasp the truth of the omnipresence of God, as some people say, well, it doesn't change anything to know that God is there. He's always there. But it changes me. When you know that God is not far from you, that he's right there whenever you need him, and that he only wants the best for you, that changes everything.